chapter 17. Page 114, if you're using the Bible in front of you, in the pews. Jump in at Exodus 17, where the people of Israel have been redeemed out of Egypt by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. They have crossed through the Red Sea uh, to escape the pursuit of Pharaoh. They, in chapter 15, have seen God change bitter water into sweet water, and they have been provided for there. They have seen God rain down manna from heaven in Exodus chapter 16. They continue... In the desert, in Exodus chapter 17, where we read, beginning at verse 1, let us hear from God's holy and inspired word and give our attention to it. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? Or not, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to, to read your word. We think of what we have read from the Gospel of John and now here from Exodus. Father, as we hear, uh, as we hear your word and your gospel proclaimed this morning, may you cleanse your servant who proclaims it to your people. Father, rid him of pride, anything that is displeasing to you. Father, may you cleanse all of our hearts in the blood of Christ. And as we gather around your word, may you feed us. May you nourish us with your good news. We pray for those in our church who need you, especially those who are hurting, those who feel so alone, those who feel as though they are constantly in in the wilderness of this world. Those who are sick, those who are shut in, Father, uphold them, uh, strengthen them, bless them uh, in and through Christ and by the power of your Spirit. Father, we think of uh, those who stand in need of of special prayers and for whom we've been praying over these past weeks. And uh, we thank you, we give you thanks that Neil Van Drunen has a a date for his surgery, uh, that he is uh, going to, Lord willing, be having surgery tomorrow. We thank you for the, the answer to prayer that that is and how quickly you have seemed to have moved in that situation. We thank you for it. 
We lift up Sandy Vandermeer as she has received now her most recent treatment this past week. Strengthen her and all of the the effects that go along with the chemotherapy. Father, we know it can be very difficult and the fatigue, the sickness, Father, and how that can wear upon uh, the heart of someone going through that. Father, may we rally around our sister, keep her uplifted in, in prayer and encouragement. We think of Vi Newtbar, who uh, continues to recover in the wake of her treatment recently. Strengthen her. Father, others who receive regular treatment for various forms of cancer, those who care for others in their own home, and, and Father, those uh, who have close loved ones who uh, are constantly on their mind and for whom they constantly pray. Father, as we look around and we see are reminded so often of how this world is not the way it ought to be. Uh, may we give thanks for the hope you give us in the midst of the desert. And uh, may, you, may you lift our eyes to heaven where Jesus Christ is, seated at your right hand. We pray in his name. Amen. This past week I was reading from a story entitled The Hammer of God. It's a story of pastors who are ministering in the Swedish countryside in the 1800s, uh, proving as, as a, a Norwegian how gracious and generous I am reading books about the country of Sweden. And there, uh, there's one pastor in this book who, who comes into the pastorate straight out of school, comes as somewhat of an arrogant know-it-all, and he has been taught in school that the miracles of Jesus are not true, that the word of God is not reliable, that the life of Jesus Christ was not about ransoming sinners to God, uh, but rather a model of a life to be followed for the good of society. This way of thinking does not last long for him, though. He realizes fairly quickly that he doesn't really have any hope to bring to his people when when this is his idea of what God's word says. He is awakened at, at the bedside of one of his congregants when he realizes as this congregant is, is dying, he has no hope to give to him. As somewhat of an awakening and he, he swears off all that he has gone through, all of his training. He realizes that it, it did him no good. But the pendulum swings pretty far the other way and he becomes very legalistic in his preaching. He begins saying to the women of his parish that they cannot braid their hair. He says to the men that they cannot enjoy anything in, in the, the realm of common grace that God gives to his people to enjoy if it is received with gratitude. He has understood, or he has begun to understand repentance, but he still has some ways to go before he understands grace, and grace alone, particularly as we find it in Jesus Christ. And then one Sunday he is administering communion, which becomes a, a, a long service, as I'm sure many of you can relate to in your own experience, in your own life. But as he is administering communion, he finds in his heart bitterness and, and judgment towards all of his parishioners coming up to receive the elements. He's saying, isn't this so-and-so? Aren't they known for doing such-and-such? How can they come to the table of the Lord? The table is being defiled as it's being approached by all of these sinners. But then in the midst of his own mind and his own heart, with each accusation that he throws, it redounds back upon him and he thinks to himself, I am 
know better. I am filled with pride and malice and greed and all manner of worldliness. These two mindsets were to sort of compete in his heart for the duration of the service. But one thing that strikes him is that as they move through the, through the liturgy of his church around the table, what he begins to see again and again and again It's not focusing on human sin and our constant struggle with sin. It is focusing on the glories of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And he is struck by how it's brought back again and again and again to this word trust. And he says, trust, simple trust, is that enough? And he is confronted with the message of grace as it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, that priceless treasure. In the same way in which we sang this morning, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We are singing there, of course, of the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. But how does the hymn continue? Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from guilt and make me pure. The first image is from Exodus chapter 33, Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock. But then the hymn writer brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're singing about the gracious provision of God. We're singing about how God is our refuge, particularly how he is that in Jesus Christ. But what we need to see is not only does God graciously provide for his people, but in order to be swept up in the gospel of grace, we need to see how he provides for his people. And that really brings us to the glory of the gospel, the glory of the work of Jesus Christ at the cross that God graciously provides for us by bearing judgment in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the rock of ages. That is what we focus on today as we gather around the table of Jesus Christ. So although we are weak and imperfect, God graciously provides for us. And as we see God's gracious provision... And the glory in which he graciously provides for us, we are confronted with the conviction that we cannot doubt God. We cannot accuse him, even though we wander through the wilderness of this world. The question is answered in this passage, who is to blame? Israel sees that they are in somewhat of a mess, somewhat of a predicament in the desert, not knowing where their next drink of water is going to come from. And so it answers the question, who is to blame? Not only does God give the answer, but he provides the solution in this picture of the gospel in Exodus chapter 17. We read then from the beginning of the passage, there was no water for the people to drink. The first thing that we see here is there is going to be an accusation that is leveled. There is a a charge that is presented. This is a bit of a courtroom drama as these legal proceedings unfold. Verse 2 says this, They quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. Two words that we should, that we should notice from the beginning of this passage. The first word is quarrel. This is not to, to engage in, in, in a petty argument, Right? This is to bring a formal accusation, to level a charge against someone. They are angry with Moses as the leader of God's people, bringing them out into the desert. And they don't know where the next drink of water is going to come from. The second word is test. When Moses says, 
Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? This word for test is really a word that means to put on trial, to place on the stand. See, ultimately, they are angry with Moses. They're, in a sense, accusing Moses, but their accusation reaches behind Moses, doesn't it? They are accusing God himself. They are putting the Lord to the test. This is a, this is a case of God on trial because of the accusations of, of the Israelites. Now, in one sense, we, we say, well, it's really difficult to be in the desert and to not know where your next drink of water is going to come from. But let's take stock of all of the things that have happened here in the book of Exodus. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. He has redeemed them out of Egypt. He has brought them into the wilderness, but he has provided for them at every turn. No one wants to be in the desert without water. But the Israelites have not properly regarded the work of God. And more importantly, here initially as we consider this, is that they are not understanding the fundamental issue of being in the wilderness. What God is doing in and through them and how he is refining them in and through it. We look at our own lives and oftentimes our our life can feel like a desert. It can feel like a wilderness. But when we are in those situations, like Israel is here, and Israel has seen the faithfulness of God, but they accuse God. They accuse God because at the first sign of discomfort, at the first sign of of something they don't like, not knowing where this next drink of water is going to come from, when they do that, they throw this accusation against God, and they are fundamentally misunderstanding the wilderness. We do the same thing so often when we are in whatever kind of situation we're dealing with in, our, in our, this life, whether it be uh, patterns of sin that bring us to a place of despair, whether it be a long line of tough situations that we say, look, this has nothing to do with anything I've done. It just seems like situation after situation places me in the wilderness, and I feel like God has forgotten me. I feel like God is not there with me. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the reigning power of death in this age, why do we experience that? Why do we experience being placed in the wilderness? It is as a result of human rebellion. It's what we have done. Now, that's not to say that each and every cancer diagnosis or each and every unexpected death of a loved one can be traced to some kind of particular sin that we have done. But before we throw accusations at God, we need to ask ourselves, do we understand why this life often feels like a wilderness? Why we, are often, why we often feel like we are wandering through a desert where there is no water for us to drink. And we need to see the futility and how wrong it is that we throw accusations at God. See, our hearts are so similar to the Israelites here. The first sign of doubt, the first sign of uh, where's our next drink going to come from? Where is the next meal going to come from? You say, God, you have forgotten me. The way in which God unfolds this in this account is truly magnificent. And so we see then not only is there a charge that's presented, but there is a, a verdict that is rendered. It is clear. And as this verdict is ren- rendered, we see that it, as Israel has accused God, God responds by saying, no, it, it's, not, it's not I who am guilty. It's you who are guilty. It's the Israelites who have been guilty in wandering from this covenant 
into which God has brought them. Look at verse 5 of Exodus chapter 17. It says, The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. As I said, we see, we'll unpack it, we see in verse 5 that a verdict has been reached. How do we know that? Two things. First, the Lord says to Moses, Assemble some of the elders of Israel. Now that means get together a group of people that are going to pass before all of the people of Israel. And when this group is assembled, you know, or everyone will know as they see it, that some kind of judgment is going to be rendered. Some kind of official statement is going to be made with Moses and the elders getting together. These are the people who have been given authority from God. So we know that a verdict has been reached, but what kind of a verdict is it? Well, it's a verdict of guilty. How do we know that? The Lord says to Moses, take your staff, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. That staff is a picture of a couple things. The first is the authority that God has given to Moses as his representative, as his mouthpiece. Then it is also a sign of God's judgment. The staff with which you struck the Nile, turning the water into blood, a sign of God's judgment upon Egypt for holding his people in slavery. It's a sign of God's judgment. God says, take that staff, that staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So a verdict has been reached. A verdict has been reached in in these proceedings and that verdict is guilty, but we know that it's not God who is guilty. Israel has accused God of forgetting the covenant, of wandering from them, of leaving them for dead, and God responds by saying, "It's it's not I who am guilty. It's you who are guilty. Psalm 95 reflects upon this account in Exodus, and it says this, Today, this is many years on, Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That's Exodus 17. When your fathers put me to the test, put me on trial, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. To put God on trial, to put God on trial when he has acted for you, when he has shown his faithfulness to you, when he has redeemed the people from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he has parted the Red Sea and saved them from the pursuit of Pharaoh, and he has given them manna from heaven, and he has given them sweet water rather than bitter water. When they have seen all of that work, to accuse God in the midst of all of that is itself an admission of guilt. See, the very accusation that the Israelites bring against God is the way that we know that they are guilty. God said, I will be your God, you will be my people. Trust me. Trust me. Live by faith. Live by every word that proceeds from my mouth. Friends, what is the work of God that you have seen? If you know Jesus Christ, if you have been made alive by the gospel of grace, if you look to Christ in faith and have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you have seen greater work than that first exodus. You have seen something greater, and your own life is a testimony to that something greater. Thus, if you have heard his voice, this is one of the enduring lessons of this passage. Do not harden your hearts as the Israelites did. No matter what kind of situation you go through in this life, no matter what your circumstances are 
and how you take stock of how did we get here and, and what does it all mean, no matter how that all comes to pass, may we never lob accusations at God saying, you have been unfaithful. No matter where we are in our wilderness wanderings, may we never do that. May we not harden our hearts just like Israel because if we have heard his voice, if we have seen his work, we have seen something that is much greater. And that is really one of the enduring lessons for us from this passage. If you have seen the work of God, if you know Jesus Christ, you have seen a work that is greater even than the Israelites have seen. And thus, in whatever situation you find yourself, never, never allow yourself to lob accusations at the Lord, saying, you have forgotten me, saying, you have disregarded me. Don't know what our situations are like. Everyone, everyone's path is a little bit different. But God is like that grand weaver pulling together the various threads of our lives. And he calls us to hold on to that eternal hope that he gives us in his Son. The charge has been presented. The verdict has been given. It is not God who is guilty. It's not God who has wandered from this covenant. It is Israel. So we need this sentence to be executed. And this is really where we see this magnificent picture of the gospel of grace. So pay, pay close attention here as we look at the end of this passage. The sentence that is executed. Verse 6 says this. Behold, God speaking to Moses. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will flow from it, and the people will drink. First, uh, two things to notice here. The first is that the Lord says to Moses, I will stand before you on the rock. That should strike us as a little bit odd because normally we would expect men to stand before God. We would not expect God to stand before Four men. But even stranger is the Lord says to Moses, now take that staff, that, that instrument of God's authority and God's judgment. Take that staff and strike the rock upon which God's presence has been identified. There is some mystery here. Ed Clowney, when he talks about this passage, says that now it, it's not as though, it's not as though uh, Moses is commanded to take that staff and strike it into the cloud of Shekinah glory. So there is mystery here, really pointing us forward to the person of Jesus Christ who comes to suffer as the God-man. So there is mystery here, but the Lord says to Moses, take that instrument of judgment and strike the rock upon which God's presence has been identified. And what happens Water flows forth. The very thing about which God's people were complaining, the very thing which they wanted so badly, and which caused them to lob an accusation against their covenant God and covenant king, God graciously provides that which Israel did not deserve. I think we all can agree. In the midst of this action, how they're complaining, how they're grumbling, they did not deserve the Lord giving them this blessing. But God is a God who graciously provides to his people when his people do not deserve it. That's a wonderful truth to hold on to. But really, the, the, the glory, the magnificence of this passage is seen not just in that God graciously provides, but it is how God graciously provides. And that's what we need to see if we're going to grasp the gospel of grace, if we're going to be encouraged by the work of Christ this morning as we gather around the table and remember the cross. We need to understand that it's not just that God graciously provides for his people. 
It's that we need to see how God graciously provides. How does he do that? He does that by bearing the blow of judgment himself. Bearing the blow of judgment himself in the judgment that Moses executes. Strike the rock, the Lord says, and water will flow forth. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on this passage, calling the Corinthians to not lose the faith, calling the Corinthians to make, uh, be, be sure and steady and steadfast in the faith. And he reminds them, do not, be like, do not be like God's people when they were wandering through the wilderness. They put God on trial. He says, let your mind be shaped by this. This is what Paul says. Our fathers, they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who was sent to earth as both God and man to bear the blow of judgment on our behalf so that God's gracious blessing might come to those who did not deserve it. God graciously provides, and that's a wonderful truth. But we need to see the glory of the work of Christ that God graciously provides by bearing the blow of judgment himself. What a staggering picture of grace. And in that, God provides an answer to our lives that every time we feel like we want to accuse God, every time we feel like he does not hear us, like he has abandoned us, he says, look to the cross of Christ. It is there that I have staked my love for you. It is there that I have won you to myself. It is there that I make you my own and I give you eternal life. After World War II, there's a lot of confusion and despair in the country of Germany. People trying to figure out what has happened. How did so many of us get swept along in, in, in this evil, this evil mission of wiping out an entire ethnic tribe from this earth? And people were saying, well, how do we make sense of this? How do we move forward? Who is to blame? Really was one of the questions everyone was asking. So there was a pastor who wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. And The Sign of Jonah uh, was to address this question of who is to blame? Who is to blame? And uh, in that play, the the players walked among the people to give a sense of, we're all sort of in on this question. Who's responsible for the Holocaust? They're walking amongst the people asking questions of, what did you know and what did you know? And so uh, the the mom who stays at home says, well, I didn't really know much. I was just kind of minding my own business. And uh, the business owner says, well, I was just trying to make a profit and I was still just trying to live my life. I didn't know much. And the soldier says, well, I was just following orders. And then eventually they all sort of begin to say, well, no, I did know this and I did know that. And I did know the trains that were carrying loads of Jews right to their death. And I stood idly by and I didn't do anything. And so everyone's saying, well, I accept some of the blame, I accept some of the blame, but the buck has to stop somewhere. So they decide, well, who ultimately is to blame? They say God is to blame. This is God's world. God is to blame. And so they ask the question saying, well, what is the sentence that we execute upon God? What do we do in order to punish him for what he has done? And this is what we read. Say, let let God know what it's like to lose a son. Let him become a man, a wanderer on the earth, homeless, hungry, a despised Jew. 
as the gavel falls and the judge leaves the bench in this play, uh, then there is this, this, uh, this scene in which three archangels carry out the sentence. And we read this. It says, I, Gabriel, shall go to a virgin by the name of Mary. She shall bear him a Jew. And I shall go and order the heavenly host to let him walk on earth without any protection. And I shall be present when he dies and I shall stand at his grave. What's the playwright doing there? Showing us that the cross was the ready-made answer to this horribly difficult question of what do we do or who is to blame and the enduring lesson for us today is that in this wilderness of this world this world in which we often feel despair and hopelessness the cross of Christ stands as the answer for us where the son of God came to be a despised man to live his life without any of the comforts that we so often enjoy He came to bear the blow of judgment. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And from his pierced side flows forth blood and water. Not only forgiveness and covering and a true and final sacrifice, but eternal life. Rivers of living water flow from him. We come to that fountain today to remember, to proclaim, to eat and to drink in faith that the Lord might nourish us by his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we make preparation, and as we have made preparation, may you bless this time. As we observe this holy sacrament, may you be honored and glorified through it. In Christ's name, amen. If you would take the form that is in...